I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the six-month anniversary since Russia invaded Ukraine, we have back with us our most frequent guest, Dr. Seth Jones, who is the director of the International Security Program at CSIS, a senior VP at CSIS, and our Harold Brown chair. Seth, welcome back. Andrew, it is, as always, a pleasure to be on. So good to have you here, man. So today, the 24th of August marks six months since Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia has lost 80,000 soldiers to either be wounded or, or deceased or missing or captured. The Ukrainians have lost a ton of people too. Where are we right now in these six months? Where does the war stand? Well, Andrew, what we don't see right now is a significant change of hands and territorial control. I wouldn't quite call it a stalemate, but we have seen a significant slowdown, particularly in Russian advances. So I think it is important visually to understand the battlefield picture in Ukraine, which is the Russians still control roughly about 20 to 25 percent of Ukrainian territory. If people can sort of think of a map of Ukraine uh, in the south along the Black Sea, Crimea, if you move north of Crimea into the Kherson area, and then as you move due east around the southern and eastern part of Ukraine through the Donbass, including into uh, Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts, and then up curving along the Russian-Ukrainian border up to the areas just east of Kharkiv. And that's a pretty big chunk of territory that the Russians control to some degree. Two things of note in what we're seeing right now. One is there's been a, a fair amount of activity of uh, assassinations, explosions. Uh, the Ukrainians have conducted a number of brazen attacks, for example, on Russian-occupied Crimea. Uh, the Ukrainians have taken have, have taken responsibility for those. We've also seen some assassinations in Russia that we'll talk about in a bit. The second is there have been for weeks now if not a little bit longer, some possible indications of a Ukrainian offensive in the South. And I haven't really seen much. We have seen an uptick in some days of artillery strikes using HIMARS by the Ukrainians against Russian weapons depots and uh, munitions depots, but we haven't seen a major conventional offensive yet, but still lots of activity. And the front between Russia and Ukraine right now is about 1,500 miles. So yeah. this is not a small territory. It's not a small territory. It's very windy along those lines. But yes, it is a pretty significant chunk of territory. And I think what's important as we move into the early fall is lots of indications of the Russians making preparations to formally annex that territory into Russia. Seth, the Biden administration has announced $3 billion more in aid which is the 19th aid package since the beginning of this war. It brings a total of $11 billion in U.S. aid to Ukraine. But as you said, Russia controls 20 to 25% of Ukraine. How is that aid really helping? You mentioned HIMARS. The aid's been helpful from the beginning in uh, providing 
weapons systems that the Ukrainians have used to target forward deployed Russian forces. So think of the visual images that that people have probably seen on digital platforms, including TikTok, certainly YouTube, on Twitter, of Russian tanks being targeted by TB2s or drones that the Turks provided or the U.S. has provided the loitering munitions like switchblades that have also targeted Russian vehicles. The shoulder-launched missiles have been helpful. The U.S. has provided stingers. It's provided javelins, stingers surface-to-air, javelins generally surface-to-surface missiles, particularly against tanks, armored personnel carriers. Those have all been helpful in stopping Russian advances. The HIMARS have been particularly helpful because the war has deteriorated into basically one of artillery duels. And the Russians have a lot more rockets and missiles and artillery than the Ukrainians do. So the HIMARS have been helpful in providing essentially 40 miles or so. That's, that's about how far that most of them, the rockets on the HIMARS now can shoot. They can hit targets reasonably deep behind uh, Russian lines. And so that has helped, hasn't quite balanced Russian and Ukrainian power, still sits in favor of the Russians, but it's certainly helped to start to level the playing field. The challenge that the Ukrainians have had, though, is they're still heavily outmanned in a range of areas. So the Ukrainians have asked for things like the uh, MGM-140 Army Tactical Missile Systems or ATACMS. Those have a range of of something close to 190 miles. So they can shoot much further behind Russian lines to target those munitions, depots, bridges, logistics that are key. They've been asking for more advanced drones like the MQ-1Cs that General Atomics makes. They've been asking for some more sophisticated fighter aircraft that the U.S. is divesting, so it's getting rid of, like the F-15s and F-16s. And that has triggered an ongoing debate in the administration, the U.S. administration, about whether they should provide some of these more sophisticated weapon systems or whether it'll escalate the war. Yeah. What's the fear that some in the administration have behind you know, giving a missile system that can go 190 miles, for instance, or airplanes that can attack Russia, even in Russia? Is it is it that we don't want them to go into Russia? Well, I think there are at least four concerns that have been raised. One of them is is actually some of these systems will escalate the war just because they're more sophisticated systems. So by providing fighter aircraft that the Russians are going to respond and escalate their response, potentially even targeting NATO territory. So one concern is just general escalation because the weapon systems being provided are more sophisticated than had previously been done. I I, I don't agree with most of that logic in part because I, I just don't think at this point the Russians really can escalate any in a meaningful way. They certainly don't want to and have given no indication of escalating the war outside of Ukraine into NATO. I mean, they're already bogged down in Ukraine. Why would they expand into the Baltic states or Poland? So I think that one's unlikely. A second, we've seen uh, some individuals concerned that it might take too much time to train them. And I think what we've seen is that's just not the case with most of the kinds of weapon system we're talking about. The attackums 
you can already put them on HIMARS right now, F-15s and F-16s. It's not a huge jump, I'm told, from a range of US pilots that I've interviewed to move from a MiG or an SU to uh, an F-15 or an F-16, particularly if you're conducting air-to-ground operations. Be a little bit different if you're conducting air-to-air operations, dogfighting. But for air-to-ground, mm, a couple of months max. So it wouldn't you know, and in a war that is likely to persist for this foreseeable future, there have been some that have been concerned third about technology transfers that the Russians get a hold of an MQ-1C. It's got some pretty sensitive pods on some of those MQ-1Cs. So, you know, maybe you're careful about if you're going to launch some of those, what you include that might get shot down if the Russians recover. And then the final issue, which uh, and the fourth one, Andrew, that that you raised is concerns that the Ukrainians might you know, use those weapon systems to hit targets deep in Russian territory. I think is the the Ukrainians have already been willing to negotiate a lot with the Americans in light of the assistance being provided. So I, I think that's all negotiable. And the Ukrainians would be generally very happy to take systems under constraints that the U.S. provides. You mentioned training, and that's a big part of this aid package, this most recent aid package, does that mean that we're actually going to be on the ground in Ukraine training Ukrainians? Or is there another way of training through, you know, video link ups, for instance? Well, the vast majority of training that I'm aware of, Andrew, is taking place in countries just outside of Ukraine. So Ukrainians can move by land routes you know, vehicles into neighboring countries where they can get the vast majority of that training, particularly on weapons systems. You know, the Ukrainians have been proven to be pretty adept uh, tactical fighters. But if the U.S. were to provide, let's say, attackums to put on the HIMARS, there would need to be some training in how those work. You could pretty easily do it in an eastern flank NATO country and provide that training. Again, the the one of the things the Russians never did is block the western border of Ukraine. So it's an open border. Same thing for some of the other things we've talked about. If the US was to provide the MQ-1Cs, the drones, be some training required on uh, how a pilot flies those MQ-1Cs some mechanical issues and how you fix them if they break down, that could all be done physically in person in a neighboring country. You know, I keep picturing the Ukrainian soldiers sitting with this equipment we're sending them uh, with a manual spread out on their lap. And, you know, to be fair, Vivian Slama, the Wall Street Journal's great reporter, came on this podcast just about a week ago and talked about, you know, she was actually with them in the field when they're launching artillery. And it's it's not too far from that in some senses that they're really, you know, they're they're learning on the go. Yeah. Well, we've seen it interestingly with with things like drones, where what the and this is really a novel use drones. I mean, when people think of drones like the MQ9s, the the US used that I've used when I was in the government, we would often use them generally for unilateral operations, limited intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, and then strikes against terrorists. What the Ukrainians have been innovating with is using sometimes quadcopters, pretty inexpensive drones on the battlefield to identify potential targets. Then they have developed software that they can put on a basically an iPad that uh, artillery soldiers have, they've downloaded on it, of locations coming from that drone of where Russian 
potential targets are. And then it's Ukrainian artillery that then has a geolocation of the target, and then it strikes it. So it's drone identified. It's developed a software that artillery have sitting in their hands. Just, just think of an iPad. Yeah, and then artillery strikes. I mean, it's an incredible innovation in the middle of a war. We saw a little bit of that in Nagorno-Karabakh between the uh, Armenians and Azerbaijanis, but nothing like what we've seen the Ukrainians do. So in one sense, we're talking about really trench warfare, like in the way past World War One. But in the same sense, we're talking about the, the highest tech kind of warfare fought to this date where you're targeting using very high-tech equipment. The photographs and videos of the front lines are really interesting. It is a combination of Ukrainian-Russian forces sitting in foxholes because of artillery barrages on both sides, but where we and we we certainly never would have seen this in in World War One or World War II, where you have operators that are using small drones to keep tabs on what the other side is doing and then to strike targets with it. So it is a combination of tried and true trenches and foxholes combined with some sophisticated technology to conduct uh, and collect intelligence, conduct surveillance, and then to strike uh, targets. So today not only marks the six-month anniversary of the war beginning, but it is Ukraine's anniversary of independence from the Soviet Union. You know, they marked this with pretty solemn celebrations today in Kyiv. Um, at the same time, Russia, as predicted by Zelensky and, and others, targeted a train station killing some civilians today. We don't know how many yet. It was the count was up to 15 so far as we're recording this. So what was this day really like in Ukraine and what does it pretend for the future? Well, I think it's actually a proud moment for the Ukrainians that they have fended off what we know increasingly from information collected from Russian soldiers and from information seized from Russian locations. This was an attempt to overthrow the Ukrainian government against arguably the third most powerful country in the world, certainly one of the most powerful military countries in the world with significant conventional and nuclear capabilities. And frankly, most military and intelligence agencies, including in the US, did not assess that the Ukrainians would be able to fend off a Russian blitzkrieg operation. And they have. So I think the fact that cities like Kharkiv, Kyiv have fended off direct Russian advances with tanks, towed artillery, is an incredible story for the Ukrainians as they mark this anniversary. And I think that's what I'm seeing is just, it's just very proud U Ukrainians standing up, fighting, and in some cases dying for their country. Speaking of dying, major development in the war this week, daughter of key Putin ally Alexander Dugin, Daria Dugina was killed in a car explosion in Moscow late on August 20th. What, what do we know about this? Well, we're in the information disinformation part of this struggle right now. 
it, it's hard to know. I mean, I think at this point, we we as outsiders have not seen sufficient evidence to to know what has happened. Um, yeah, we, and the State Department's Ned Price said yesterday, you know, take whatever Russia says with a grain of salt because Russia, of course, is blaming this on Ukraine. Well, and, and Russia, if if people remember, Russia said in December of 2021, January of 2022, February of 2020, that they were never going to invade Ukraine and repeatedly, and yet they did. So what Russia has done is they've blamed Ukrainian special services for the murder of Daria. She is a political commentator herself, and she is the daughter, as you noted, of the prominent ultra-national ideologue Alexander Dugin. The Ukrainians have have said that it was not them. It's hard to know. What what I would say is that this, it does indicate at least two things. One is there's been a shift over the last probably couple of weeks, if not months, in a series of subversive and sabotage efforts. The ones that we know the Ukrainians were involved in were in places like Russian-occupied Crimea, where there have been assassinations of Russian-backed Ukrainian politicians who have replaced Ukrainian ones. We've seen explosions at uh, major Russian facilities in Russian-controlled territory within Ukraine. So it's really an indication of a guerrilla war. So if the Ukrainians were involved in this, it would be another example. But there's a second element, which is there's been um, some growing criticism about Vladimir Putin uh, from his right. From, and these are the ultra right. From the ultra right. Dugan the is the ultra right and daughter Daria Dugan, ultra right nationalist, very, very pro war, saying that Putin and the Russians aren't doing yet enough. Yes. Now, uh, so, I mean, regardless of who was behind this assassination, and we still don't know, there is growing unhappiness that the Russian offensive has stalled and that the number of Russian dead is as high as it is. You know, 15, 16, 17,000 regular Russian units plus five, six, seven, eight thousand irregular uh, units. The Donbass and militias, the Donetsk and Luhansk militias, some of the Wagner group, uh, private military companies have, have died in large numbers uh, supporting the Russians. And Russia's having a hard time getting soldiers to replace these that they've lost. Absolutely. And its economy is is in very serious trouble right now because of the sanctions diplomatically at least with the West, Russia's been isolated. So this is a tough position that Putin is in right now. It seems like Daria Dugina was an unlikely target for the Ukrainians. Like the people they have targeted have been in Ukrainian territory, occupying as they see it, Ukrainian territory. What would be the strategic imperative for Ukraine to assassinate a civilian in Moscow like this? Just doesn't seem like there's much there. No, uh, there have been there's been some speculation that the attack was actually directed at her father instead because they apparently were together earlier. Right, they were at a festival. But uh, you know, again, this is all sort of rote speculation. I would say that it would be probably unlikely that she would be the target of an assassination attempt by the Ukrainians. Someone like her father, maybe more so. Because he is such a public, ultra-nationalist ideologue and supporter of the war who has called the Ukrainians fascists. So probably a more likely target. But again, you know, this is still pretty rote speculation. So back to the conflict, 
really some of the things that Alexander Dugan has been talking about is that, you know, the Russia is not accelerating fast enough, partly because they really are bogged down and they've lost a lot of soldiers and winter is coming. So what's going to happen in the next couple months with the Russian effort? Are they just going to back up and, and quiet down and just wait it out? Or is there a scenario where um, they redouble their efforts and push? So I, I think there are a couple of things. One is we are seeing them expedite political governance-related issues, that is annexation. And so I would fully expect, and we've seen indications that in areas, including in the South, that we'll see them annex territory and try to do it formally. So there's a political component to bring that into Russia. And we've already seen them replacing the Ukrainian uh, currency with the Russian ruble. We've seen them replace the school curriculum in those areas with uh, Russian education curriculum. Uh, we've seen them replace the Ukrainian flag with the Russian one. So I think one definite issue is consolidate the gains that they've made so far politically and bring that into Russia. Remember, Vladimir Putin said in a letter to his troops last summer, well before the war, that Ukraine is not a real state anyway. It's historically part of Russia. It, it's not inconceivable that the Russians try to make another push into Donetsk because they have indicated and Putin has indicated a desire to take all of Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts in the east. They do have pretty much all of Luhansk. They do not yet have uh, Donetsk. Part of the challenge is they moved some of those forces down into the south in anticipation of a potential Ukrainian counterattack. And I think that's what that's one thing to keep an eye on is what that looks like. And again, I think all of these conventional potential actions, there will still be an underlying guerrilla war going on in Russian-controlled areas of Ukraine. Now, by most accounts, NATO has been greatly strengthened by this war. And the resolve of the Europeans has also been strengthened. But, you know, winter is coming. Gas prices and oil prices are high. Do you think the resolve really continues to exist in Europe and in the United States to back Ukraine? Unclear. I think it's certainly possible that some European states, especially if there is a stalemate that starts to settle in, may push for something close to a resolution to the conflict, each temporary, even if it's even if it's a ceasefire. So I could conceivably see some Western European countries, the French or the Italians or the Germans, supporting uh, something that looks like a settlement. I think it's unlikely that you'd see that kind of support among NATO countries that are in the eastern flank of NATO, the Poles, for example, the Baltic states, just because anything that looks like Russia is being rewarded for seizing territory does not augur well for them because they're borderline countries. So what that suggests is a f something of a fracturing among NATO countries. The British have been pretty hawkish on supporting weapon systems into Ukraine. So I, they'd probably, they've generally sat more along the lines of what we see in the Poles or the Baltic states. So I, I think, Andrew, the answer really is it would not surprise me to see growing fissures within NATO countries on those who want to keep pushing against the Russians in Ukraine, escalating the types of weapon systems they're providing and those that start to really push for a settlement. Seth, as always, 
You have so many of the answers and the best insight in the business. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. It's always great to sit down with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 